0: Hey, welcome to That Badass Podcast. I'm Kaylee, your realistic nutritionist, helping you find the balance between green smoothies and red wine. And I'm
1: Ashley, the creator of Royally Fit, that went from obsessive exercising and calorie counting
0: to living a free, unrestrictive, and badass life. We are here to build a tribe of babe-supporting babes so you can thrive in your fitness, health, and mental wealth. So if you like to keep it real,
1: raw, and controversial, welcome. Let's get started. Boom! Nailed that shit! <laughs> After like 18 <laughs> tries. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to That Badass Podcast. I'm hanging out today with Kaylee. Hey. Hello. And an awesome guest whose name is Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. Oh, hi, Lisa. She's actually the host of the Fertility Friday Podcast, which you need to check out. And she's a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner. Also, she just released her first book, The First Vital Sign. So I'm really into this discussion because we're going to be talking everything vaginas. And I'm all about vaginas and sex. So it's going to be a really fun episode. And we're going to be specifically talking about how the menstrual cycle is an important biomarker for women's overall health.
2: So that was a really long intro but welcome Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And we're local which we discovered in our I'm,
0: podcast. We're crazy. Yeah, like you're not even 20 minutes from my house. No. Yeah, we have no idea. Yeah. So we'll be doing the next one in person. We'll have some wine and make yes. Home. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into the nitty-gritty and the vagina talk, we just like to do <laughs> a little bit of rapid fire just so our listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit. So just don't think too much just answer quick these are just for fun. First one. Who was your favorite Spice Girl?
2: Uh Crazy Spice. Cra- scary? scary?
0: Scary. <laughs> <Do> you- <laughs> not enough. Know which one scary Spice is. Who is um
2: that? Mel B? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. She was I'm a little rusty it's been a minute.
0: <laughs> yeah, she was it's totally just a bit. my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um what
2: is your go-to Starbucks order? Ooh. Um it is a grande latte uh, made with cream, like all cream. All cream. Uh, only one shot.
1: Isn't that what our last guest said, made with cream? Yes. I didn't even know this was a thing.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> um, what show are you currently binging? Oh,
2: this is embarrassing. Um, Gossip Girl. Nice. <laughs> That's Legit. Side awesome. <laughs> note, when you're done that, I
0: recommend that you should watch the show you. Oh, guys. I already have. Oh, you have? we <laughs> okay, to talk to about after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, where was the last place you traveled?
2: Um, California.
0: Oh, well, nice. fine. Where in California?
2: Um, oh, this is bad. I got off at the John Wayne Airport. I went to a conference there. I'm trying to remember Orange County. Oh, okay. Not very good. Fun. (laughs) Um, what was the last movie you saw? Oh, um it was good too. Uh with Idris Elba, the Dark
0: Tower. Oh, he is sexy. Right? Oh, my God. I'm, at the, I'm watching The Office again for the zillionth time, and it's right, right when he's in there. And I'm like, I love this part of the show. I don't even know who this is. I feel so out of the loop oh, here, guys. He's, he's sexy I'm people, people this year.
2: Legit. I feel,
0: I feel
1: like I'm under a rock when I hang out with Kaylee. I'm like, who is this? What song is this? And he's like an
0: older guy, too. He's been around for, like, decades. What's his name? Ildris Ilba. Oh, my God. I gotta I'll show you out. after
2: we will do Check it. out his Instagram.
0: Yeah, so this actually might be the answer to your next question is who is your biggest celebrity
2: crush? Um well I guess it'd be when I was younger, it was Will Smith all day. Yes. All the time. We have the um, but Idris is Idris. Yep, I agree. Okay, <laughs> those are all
1: my rapid fire questions. That was fun. Mm-hmm. And now I feel really ignorant. Like I need to educate myself with current events. <laughs> Um, okay. So thank you for doing that, but now we're going to switch gears and we're going to get into a really important topic, which is obviously about the menstrual cycle and then how it is a biomarker of your overall health. So why don't you just first start by saying, or explaining what is a vital sign?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, a vital sign is, um, it's a bodily, measure, essentially, that measures what's happening real time with your health. So we could say it's a biomarker. And the vital signs that we're most familiar with would be our heart rate, our respiratory rates, how many beats uh, or how many breaths we take per minute, our temperature and our blood pressure. And we all have a pretty good sense that if you go to the doctor and they measure the vitals, there's a... an established set of parameters that are normal for each one. So if you, for example, if your doctor takes your blood pressure and it's too high or too low, not only does it give the doctor some information kind of in real time about what's happening with you. Also, if it's out of the range, the doctor knows where to look. If the blood pressure is low, oh, it could be these things. If it's high, oh, it could be these things. And what's interesting is that, so, you know, in my book, the title, The Fifth Vital Sign, I'm arguing. You're
1: probably wondering, why did she ask about the vital sign? If you don't remember in in the intro. It's, it's because
2: The yeah. book is called the fifth vital sign. Yeah. Yes. Um, so essentially, I mean, in the book, I'm arguing that the menstrual cycle for women of reproductive age should be considered the fifth vital sign. So in addition to those four vital signs we just talked about, the menstrual cycle. And so in the same way that all of those other vital signs have an established set of parameters that we you know we get that we understand it the menstrual cycle does as well and for women of reproductive age when the menstrual cycle goes outside of those parameters it is linked to underlying health issues so essentially the menstrual cycle would be this subtle sign that something is going wrong sometimes not so subtle and You know, typically when I, even I I actually had a client session this morning and I asked her how long her menstrual cycle is and she started explaining how long her period is. So typically when we think of our menstrual cycle, we just think, oh, it's just the period. And so, you know, when I'm working with clients and this, the whole concept of the menstrual cycle, we're looking at the menstrual cycle in its entirety from the first day of your period until the last day before your next one. So it's like, what's all that stuff that happens in between? So in a healthy menstrual cycle, of course, we would be looking at the period. Um, a typical period would last between anywhere from three to seven days. Uh, we would expect it to not be too heavy, not be too light. So there's an established parameter there. After your period is over, then it typically takes a couple of days before you start to see cervical mucus. Although we're not really taught a whole lot about our cervical mucus, a lot of women have noticed it so sometimes it looks like creamy white hand lotion sometimes it looks like clear stretchy raw egg whitey type fluid not all women have a lot of that some women will just notice that as they approach ovulation they might feel like they go to the bathroom and it's like they have to wipe a couple times because it feels like there's something there or it's just really lubricative and slippery uh, around that time. (laughs)
1: I just did that, if anybody's wondering. I was like, oh, I'm clearly ovulating right now. Like, I just went pee. (laughs) And I did a nice big wipe, and I was like, oh. Got a Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, and so then just to kind of clear off the menstrual cycle. So then at some point after you start to see this cervical fluid, you would ovulate in a healthy cycle. And then after ovulation, your period would come about 12 to 14 days later. So each of those little parts of the menstrual cycle, when we break it down, would You know, if anything were to go wrong with any of those, whether it's, you know, you're having way too much mucus or you're not having any mucus, whether you're ovulating a lot later in your cycle or you're not ovulating, if you're, you know, the second half of your cycle between ovulation and your period is too short or or you're spotting or you're just experiencing different challenges, all of those different factors give us information about our health because ultimately our menstrual cycles are a reflection of our overall health. Um, so hopefully that answers the final sign question. Yeah. It's kind of just like getting juicy. Yeah,
1: I
0: love it. I, I love like it. that you used the word juicy when we just talked about. <laughs> yeah.
2: I can't help it. It's always, yeah. we're recording this on Wednesday, TMI Wednesday. It's always TMI with me. Oh,
1: yeah, <laughs> so- I like that. I like that. That's like me every day. TMI every day. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you kind of touched on it a little bit, like when you're just explaining that, but can you explain exactly like what does a healthy mental cycle look like?
2: Yes. Um, So, I mean, overall, in general, we often think of a healthy menstrual cycle just being about how long it is. So there's a lot of myths about the menstrual cycle that we have to overcome in order to understand it. So the myth that the menstrual cycle is always 28 days, the myth that ovulation always happens on day 14. So a lot of women will assume that that's all that it means to be healthy. The cycle has to be 28 days. And so it's helpful to recognize that a healthy cycle does range. So. You know, we're not actually robots, and our cycles do respond to what's happening in our lives. So, a healthy cycle would fall anywhere from about 24 to 35 days in length, and that's the whole cycle. And um, given that big of a range, that means that ovulation doesn't always happen on day 14. And with a cycle that's about 24 to 35 days in length, ovulation would fall typically somewhere between days 10 and 23. That's a pretty big range, contrary to what we've you know learned about the cycle. Um, so in addition to the, the menstrual cycle kind of falling into that range, we would look at the period, as I mentioned, we would expect the period to be at least three days up to about seven days. We'd expect it to have a beginning, middle, and an end. So for it to stop, some women may experience trail and spotting, where the period's kind of just like a sentence that runs on; it doesn't really end. Um, there's a, a you know a normal range of bleeding that we would expect. So, uh, what my research kind of turned up a healthy period falls somewhere between about 25 milliliters to about 80 milliliters of bleeding. And so, to put that into perspective, for any ladies who use a menstrual cup during their entire period, you know from start to finish, you'd fill at least one cup. So at least one ounce. Uh, And then, you know, up at the top limit, you're filling the cup four or five times uh, throughout the whole period. And the reason that 80 milliliters is the top of the limit is because what the research tells us is that when you're bleeding more than that consistently, you're more likely to be deficient in iron. And there's an interesting relationship there because if you are deficient in iron, you're more likely to bleed more. But obviously bleeding more is going to make you deficient in iron. So there's an interesting relationship there.
1: Yeah. Pardon. I said
0: it's like a catch 22. Like
2: Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Is it common at all to have spotting before your period actually comes?
2: It is common, but again that would fall outside of the optimal parameters. And so um maybe I'll go through and we'll kind of get to that in a little bit more detail. Uh, but so in a healthy cycle, you would expect to have a, you know, typically a couple of days before you start to actually see mucus when you go pee, uh, but you would eventually start to see it and you would expect to see mucus. Um, so either the lotion or the clear stretchy for about two to seven days. And so um, it with at least one day where you do have some, uh, Clear, stretchy cervical mucus. And so, if you're having too much or having too little, that's giving us information. You would expect to ovulate. I have to think, you know, ovulation has to happen in order to consider it a healthy cycle. And one of the myths in general about the menstrual cycle and the birth control pill is, you know, the birth control pill is regulating your cycle or all those types of things. So, you know, any woman who's on hormonal birth control, they're not actually having a true menstrual cycle, uh, because in order to have a true menstrual cycle, you have to ovulate, um, and then your period comes about two weeks later. So, uh, it's just helpful to know a true menstrual bleed in order to have one of those. Ovulation has to take place, and then the t- the you know the period of time between ovulation and the uh, next period about 12 to 14 days and we would expect during that period of time for you your mucus to dry up so for you not to have mucus that you're observing every day after that and also we wouldn't expect it to be too short or to have a lot of spotting so if you are having you know spotting very consistently cycle after cycle for several days prior to your period if your luteal phase so that second half of the cycle is regularly short, you know, 9 days, 10 days or less, then that would be an indication of a problem. And to put it into perspective, so for a woman who is trying to conceive or just wants to be healthy. <laughs> uh, but it, for specifically for women a woman who wants to is trying to conceive. If the luteal phase. So what's
1: the luteal phase? Can you just explain that quickly?
2: Yeah, the period of time between ovulation and your next period. Okay. So in a healthy cycle, it needs to be about 12 to 14 days, which is about 2 weeks. And the reason for that is because after ovulation, you know, if if you're trying to get pregnant, if you're having sex and sperm meets egg and we have, you know, fertilization, then, you know, this happens in the fallopian tubes. It takes about a week or so for the egg to make its way into the uterus. And then the process of implantation takes about another week in order to fully implant into the uterine lining and wall and, and be covered over and, you know. Snuggle, snuggle in there, really. And so for women who have too little time, so they're getting their period you know, 10 days after ovulation, their uterine lining is shutting before the egg has fully had an opportunity to implant. So, I mean, I think for a lot of women, especially who start charting their menstrual cycles, discover fertility awareness, and start to recognize their menstrual cycle as a biomarker, it's really through charting that would give you that type of information. If you weren't tracking your cycle, you wouldn't really know if that was a problem and if that could be related to the fact that you're not conceiving. You could actually be conceiving, but the egg could be not implanting because you have a short luteal phase.
1: Mm, Interesting. Um, okay, and then I have another question because something you touched on is what is your opinion of birth control? Then, if, if <laughs> you believe, I think I know what the answer is, but if you believe that you know you have to ovulate in order to have a healthy menstrual cycle, and if they're not properly ovulating, then I would assume that your your opinion is not good.
2: Well, it's a it's a big topic, and I suppose what it comes like my opinion about birth control. Um, I have a lot of things to say about the side effects. I think first and foremost, what is really important is as women, we need to understand what it's doing to our bodies. We need to understand what the side effects are. We need to understand how it affects our fertility. And uh, I feel that that is the most important part of it because there's a lot of misinformation. So um, I think it's helpful to recognize what the birth control isn't doing. For instance, a lot of women who have irregular cycles. So let's say, The true definition, first of all, of an irregular cycle isn't like any cycle that's not 28 days. (laughs) So, you know, we talked about the range 24 to 35 days. So your cycle is really irregular if it varies more than say eight days from cycle to cycle. So if one month your cycle is 27 days and then the next month it's like 42 days and then it kind of fluctuates quite a bit, that would be considered irregular. So there's a lot of women that fall into that category, but we're not thinking of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. We're thinking it's this annoying thing that's harassing us and we need to get it under control. So when we go to the doctor and they put us on birth control, um, the birth control pill, what it does is it actually suppresses ovulation in order to ovulate, our you know, hypothalamus, our pituitary gland, our ovaries, they have to have a conversation, our HBO access. And when you take birth control, it suppresses that conversation. And you could think of it as it puts the ovaries to sleep because we're no longer ovulating. Therefore, you're no longer having a period. But when you stop taking the artificial hormones for a couple of days, you have a bleed, a withdrawal bleed. And so when you actually have cycle irregularities, the pill isn't fixing them or regulating them. It's suppressing your natural cycle and replacing it with a fake one. And so you're getting, it's like a pat on the back. You're getting like this fake bleed every 28 days to make everybody feel better. But if you actually have an issue, an underlying health issue, which is the reason that your cycle was irregular, then you're not addressing it. So what happens is 15 years later, when you come off the pill to try to have a baby, that issue wasn't addressed. It's still there. The pill didn't cause it, but the pill didn't help it. So it's probably the same or worse. And you now have to deal with that issue if you want to conceive naturally um, on top of any side effects that were related to birth control. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for clarifying that.
0: We completely agree. Oh yeah. I was just kind of thinking about my, you explained my exact situation. I was 15, went to the doctor. I was getting my period for about two weeks, every two weeks Mm -hmm. and put me on the pill. And I was on it for almost 15 years. And I remember him even saying to me that I could just keep taking my pill and never get my period. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And as I got older, I'm like, something about this is just so against our biology. And I'm like, it just doesn't feel right. And then I started doing my research about the pill and as a nutritionist in class, I started learning and learning and I went off of it and I, I would never, I don't think I could ever go back on it.
2: Yeah. Well, the, I feel like what I'm, the pill conversation is so central to the concept of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign because it shows us what happens when we suppress it, when we Mm -hmm. prevent it from happening. And only when you understand. So one of the analogies that I use, I'm full of the analogies, is, okay, so let's say we are you know, you're know you going to go buy a car. So if you go to a car dealership and you're buying a new car, you can decide whether or not to put the AC in there. And if you put the AC in or if you take it out, it doesn't change the way the engine functions because it's a separate component because it is a machine. Uh, but the human body, we're not machines. And for some reason, this the way that we think about the menstrual cycle, it gives us the idea that it's somehow separate. It's almost as though science has declared that women are basically men, except we just have ovaries. And we're not really going to figure out why and how they work and everything. We're just going to assume that it's not really related to the whole functioning of the body. And so with the pill, for example, the thought behind that is that your ovaries and your menstrual cycle and your reproductive system is only important when you want to have babies. So we can just shut it down when we're not trying to have babies and it's not really going to have an effect on the rest of the body. So when you, but when you think of your menstrual cycle as a vital sign and when you understand that it's connected to our physiology as women, then it starts to make sense why the pill is associated with so many side effects. So when you think of your menstrual cycle, you, you don't really think that you're, so for example, when you, during your menstrual cycle, the first half you're producing estrogen primarily, the second half, you're producing progesterone primarily. You don't really think that those hormones have, we don't really think about it a lot, but we don't think that those hormones really impact more than that. We kind of think it's just reproduction, but we have receptors for these hormones in our breasts, in our brain, in our bones. And the menstrual cycle has an impact far beyond just our reproductive organs. So Okay, so with that in mind, when you take hormonal birth control and you look at the list of side effects, which is in the scientific literature, from nutrient deficiencies, it changes the way we metabolize B vitamins, uh, you know, long-term birth control use is associated with zinc deficiency, um, B12, B6 in particular it changes. uh, It's associated with magnesium deficiency, selenium, coenzyme Q10. The list really goes on and on. It's associated with an increased risk of depression because it reduces our testosterone levels very significantly. It's associated with low libido and painful sex because it actually changes our vulva tissues. So there's studies that have shown that women who are taking the pill, um, it thins our vulvar tissues, the vaginal opening makes it thinner shrinks the clitoris, uh, making us more likely to have painful sex. Not every woman experiences it in the same way, but every woman who's on hormonal birth control, the, her testosterone levels are, at, you know, 50% or less of what a woman is who is not. Um, and it goes on. I could, I could go on all day. The <laughs> additional side effects. Uh, it affects the way that we, um, it's called, it affects our mate choice. So the scientific term is the major histocompatibility complex. That's a really fancy word to say that when you meet someone that you like, you kind of, part of the attraction is how they smell, the pheromones. Mm -hmm. And so when you're on birth control, it changes how you perceive the scent of others. And it also changes how you smell to them. So, uh, you know, and this has been kind of going around on the internet and I remember reading articles about it But what really surprised me was when I looked at the research There was so much of it because there's a whole field of environmental biology that looks at this stuff And so they do all these tests where it's 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 one of those sayings of, you know, the truth is stranger than fiction (laughs) Uh, because they do these tests and women who are on the pill are more likely to choose a mate who is more similar genetically. So because the way you smell is related to your genes. So more likely to choose a partner who's similar genetically, more likely to choose, um, they're very gendered, these studies, they'll look at like choosing male partners with more feminine characteristics, they'll feminize the faces of men, you can see the faces, it's bizarre, and women are more likely to choose just basically a different person. And so then you hear stories about women coming off of birth control. And in some cases, if they met their partner when they were on the birth control, they come off the birth control and sometimes can't, their partner has a smell that they didn't notice before, and they are all of a sudden not attracted to their partner anymore. So it goes on and on, but only when you can think of your menstrual cycle as a vital sign can you start to understand how messing with it would have all of these far reaching effects outside of your ability to procreate.
1: Yes. Oh that is God. so freaking interesting. Yeah, it is. Holy shit! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's wow. I'm like almost speechless. I know, but, but it makes so much sense at the same time. That's so cool that you're you're really digging into this as like a fifth vital sign because I completely I completely agree, and I'll share my story with you later when we're done the podcast. But yeah, for me, period has been very in line or out of line with what's going on in my health. And then, yeah, I'm starting to think, I'm like, oh, did I choose that asshole back in the day? Did I <laughs> not birth control or? Yeah, but anyways, that's really interesting. So I guess another, another question for you, even outside of the birth control pill, like what are common conditions that can actually disrupt our period and our menstrual cycle?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really great great question because there's a lot of things that you can pick up by charting. Some of them are more subtle. So for instance, if you have a yeast infection that's subtle, so it, you're not itchy yet, <laughs> um, you know, if you're charting your mucus and you notice all of a sudden you go from having your normal two to seven day pattern to having an everyday pattern, something as simple as yeast infection you can pick up. Um, when women have cervical dysplasia, abnormal cervical cells, that's associated with uh, a type of watery discharge that's different to mucus that happens throughout the cycle kind of all the time. So for women who are charting and who are kind of more keen to that, they can pick up on something as significant as the early signs of precancerous cervical cells, right? Like that's pretty big. Um, But in addition to that, uh, other health issues... From what I've seen working with women over the years, nearly any type of health issue can show up in different ways. The most obvious ones would be thyroid disorders. So thyroid disorders can cause your cycle to be longer, shorter. It can interfere with the luteal phase. And of course, uh, if you're hypothyroid, it can show up with low temperatures. And uh, so that's one of the ways that it can show up. For women who have metabolic issues, if they have polycystic ovary syndrome, which is characterized by chronic inflammation and um, uh, insulin resistance, and you know increased risk of cardiovascular disease, women with PCOS are more likely to develop diabetes later on in life and have cardio higher cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, you know the classic PCOS menstrual cycle chart is that irregular cycle where you are having cycles that are sometimes you know forty five days or Rotating in between 29 days and you know 40 something days or something like that, or having fewer than eight or nine periods a year. Um, and in addition to that, I think hypothalamic amenorrhea is a really interesting example of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. So, what that means is that you stop ovulating. Therefore, you stop getting a period. And I think a lot of us are really familiar with the Olympic athlete example where we think, okay, she's working out a ton, and but you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to lose your period. You could just really be into whatever exercise five times a week, two hours a day, um, and not be consuming enough to offset the energy expenditure. So hypothalamic amenorrhea is characterized by a combination of stress, uh, under eating, and over exercise, basically. So some combination of those. And in that example, when a woman stops menstruating, it's her body's way. So first of all, if we think of our bodies as intelligent, and if we think, instead of thinking our bodies are broken, if we actually think that our bodies are responding to whatever it is that's happening in our lives, and our bodies are actually intelligent and they're trying to protect us, in the case of hypothalamic amenorrhea, then you have a woman who is either, she's chronic undernutrition, chronic overexercise, but basically like not enough energy to sustain and, you know, chronic stress. And so her body is trying to conserve energy by preventing pregnancy, (laughs) preventing the additional stress on the body. Because I mean, what could require more energy than growing a human being, right? Um, And so in that case, what's, what's really interesting and also tragic is that when a woman stops loses her period for that reason, her degree, she starts to rapidly lose bone mass. And the longer that she doesn't have her period, the higher her chance, her lifetime risk of developing osteoporosis. And so, for example, you know, an ex- more extreme example of that are women who are anorexic, you know, who have a legitimate issue not eating um, and all everything that's associated with that, who then lose their periods, increased risk of osteoporosis. And again, if you think of your periods as only important when you're trying to have babies, well, I'm pretty sure we don't want to get osteoporosis. So that's a pretty good idea of, you know, how is the menstrual cycle related to our bone health? While our bones have receptors for estrogen and progesterone and both hormones are play a really important role in building and maintaining our bone mass. Mm-hmm. So if that doesn't indicate that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign, like, I don't know what does.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. So. I know the one of the things that you talk about is how like some people only pay attention, like you're saying to their menstrual cycle, if they're interested in conceiving, but how, like, why, like how important it is to pay attention to this regardless, because it is a vital sign. So can you kind of give, I guess what I'm trying to say here is like, for those that are interested in conceiving, what should they look for? But those that aren't interested in conceiving, I feel like I need to regain my thought. <laughs> I had too many different thoughts going through my head. So I'm probably going to have to edit this out. Um, okay. So I'm trying to think of what question I want to go to next, because we're talking about contracept- con- contraceptives. And then um, I want to make it interesting for people that aren't even interested in either using those or
2: having a baby. mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so like, which I know you're touching on, I know I'm kind of losing my track. But I
2: think I understand what you're saying because you're, you're basically asking about why we should care about the menstrual cycle if we never want to have kids.
1: Yeah. And you're talking about some of those things. You're talking about osteoporosis and you're talking about, um, like, you know, different hormones going to different parts of our body and our brain and stuff. I'm trying to think about another way to like motivate people. I don't know. Maybe I need to get out of that mindset of like, well, I
2: could talk about libido. Because regardless of whether or not you want kids, I'm pretty sure that you want to have great sex because who doesn't? (laughs) Um, And so again, the conversation kind of intertwines with hormonal birth control. And that's why I often go there because one of the, I mean, there's a running joke about you know, the majority of hormonal birth control methods that the reason why it works is because you don't have sex anymore. <laughs> I can um, to this because
0: I remember being in a backyard with all of my high school girlfriends and every single one of us was on the pill and there was one girl that wasn't. And we were all talking about how, like, remember when you were like 15 and 16 and you would basically like hump anything? Like you're just your hormones are going so crazy. And we're like, it's funny how like we don't have those same urges as as intense as we did. And my one friend that wasn't on the pill was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I still want to hump everything. And we're like, interesting. And then when I did go off the pill, I was like, whoa, I feel like I'm 16 again. And it was actually very nice because it kind of concerned me for a little bit. I was like, I'm 23 and I'm not really horny, hardly ever. And I thought maybe I just wasn't attracted to my partner anymore. And I didn't really know, but it all came back when I went
2: off the pill. Yes, to everything you said, and what's—it's hard because as women, when we have these experiences, if you try to explain it to your doctor, you know, you end up in therapy. Like someone's going to try to tell you that it's emotional and you've got daddy issues or whatever, but really, it could literally be the biological effects of birth control. So, uh, you know, I get a lot—I get flack from time to time talking about birth control because, of course, uh, you. I recognize that it was an important part of the women's liberation movement. Ironically, part of the sexual liberation movement, given that it is associated with lowering libido, right? But I recognize that that was a big part of it. But at the same time, when women say things to me like, you know, I was on the pill and it was, you know, I had the greatest experience. I had no side effects. The fact is that there are certain biological effects that are going to happen to every woman um, because that's how it works. It's designed to stop you from ovulating. <laughs> when it stops you from ovulating, it prevents you from producing your natural levels of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And so, when it comes to testosterone, there's a couple different ways that that the pill suppresses it, which is related to the, the libido thing. So, the one thing is by shutting down the ovaries. The ovaries do produce, a, you know, a certain amount of testosterone. So, by suppressing ovarian function. That's what happens, but when women are taking um, hormonal birth control, what happens is there's um, a protein called sex hormone binding globulin, and you know in the book I use the example of a magnet and iron filings. If you've ever seen one of those demos where you take like a big magnet and there's little iron filings and it kind of draws it all up, so sex hormone binding globulin (SHBG) it binds to testosterone and so it kind of goes through the bloodstream and binds it. And so women who are taking birth control, their levels of SHBG go up by anywhere from 200 to 400%. So you have this magnet that's running around and like binding to all of your testosterone, meaning that it's just not available to your cells to use. And so as women, we produce about 90% of the testosterone that men do. So we have Quite a bit less in quantity, but the amount that we do produce is essential for our sexual, just our sexual responses. And there's a lot of research that's been done in this area where they'll have women go on birth control. They'll uh, do a combination of testing their blood to see what you know hormone levels are like, but they'll also do questionnaires. So women on birth control report, um, you know, less frequency of orgasms. Some aren't able to orgasm. Less intensity lower libido, um, less interest. And then some women do report a higher degree of painful sex. So, um, one of the, like to answer your question about, you know, why would we care about having a menstrual cycle essentially outside of, you know, especially for women that never plan to have children or are kind of on the fence or are really not going to have children for quite a while. And you know, why not just go on the pill for 20 years? Well, I I think you want to have a libido and you would want to enjoy the full expression of your sexuality. And there's also a growing understanding. uh, There's a growing push towards optimal health. And so a lot of us are cleaning up our lifestyles. We're using natural cleaning products. We're throwing out our regular chemical laden stuff, we're buying essential oils, we're mixing vinegar water, we're, you know, buying organic food. I buy my food from, um, or I buy my meat from a store close to where we both live that sources hormone-free meat from local farmers. We're all doing some degree of this stuff in our houses. And one of the, one of my lovely analogies is that When you buy meat, for example, that has like conventional meat with hormones in it, or when you buy conventional produce that has been sprayed with pesticides, those pesticides weren't specifically designed to shut down your endocrine system. (laughs) But when you take hormonal birth control, it was actually designed to suppress your endocrine system. That was the point. Because if it didn't do that, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be an effective birth control if you, you know, if if it didn't do these things. And so part of this kind of growing awareness about hormones and chemicals and all of that stuff, it has to lend itself at some point to what is it doing to our bodies if we're putting chemicals in there. And, you know, one thing I'll say, and I always say this when I talk about birth control, because of course I come off as anti-birth control, like no one should ever use it or whatever, but that's not my stance. I really come from a place where I feel like it's important for women. We need to have the ability to be informed so that we can make an informed decision about what we're doing. And I think that women fall into three categories when we're actually informed. Some of us would be freaked out by all of this stuff and would say like, no, no, thank you. This is not for me. Some of us would use it, but we would use it for a period of time. So for me, I've been on the pill. When I was a teenager, I had really heavy, painful periods and I didn't know how to manage it. And I purposely went to the doctor asking for the pill so that I could keep playing my sports and all that. Granted, I didn't make an informed decision, but I made that choice. So some women would choose to go on it, but they might just not be on it for twenty years. You know, they might go on it for five, or they might come off of it earlier. And then some women would take it for just as long because it fit, it's doing exactly what they need it to do. At the end of the day, all of those choices are completely fine. the The key is that we need to be able to be informed about what the effects are. Also, so that if you do have painful sex, or if you do have some sort of issue that you know, right, and you can come off of it and see. Give you, you know, a lot of women end up like with these effects for years and they don't know until they come off of it 15 years later and then they're like oh
1: yeah they just think that's their norm right <laughs> so so would you say that painful sex a low libido um not getting as wet per se what, those are all signs of maybe a little bit of like a hormonal imbalance like your menstrual <laughs> cycle is a little bit off some people are just like, oh, maybe I'm just, you know, in the thick of my life and maybe I'm not as hot and heavy for my husband anymore or my partner anymore, but maybe there's a little bit more to it than that.
2: Yeah. I mean, especially for women who are taking birth control. I mean, I think it's important just to know that we hear a lot of stuff about like, oh, the birth control pill makes me think I'm pregnant or, right. It regulates the cycle, but if you were to look at the natural hormones of a woman on birth control because her ovaries are inactive essentially, um the natural hormone levels would be more comparable to a woman in menopause, and then all of a sudden it makes sense how a twenty one year old could have low libido and like Vaginal dryness. It just seems very odd. Uh, so, yeah, I would go as far to say that if you have basically no libido, yeah, that is a sign of an issue. For women who aren't on hormonal birth control, having no libido, having, you know, no cervical mucus, no natural arousal fluid could be a sign of a lot of different things. Stress related, there could be an endocrine issue, depression, you know, these where well, we're one of my mentors, she says, I think I'm trying to remember her exact words, but she basically says, like, from a biological standpoint, we are here to reproduce, right? Yeah. So that's our job. So um, from that perspective, having healthy menstrual cycles, having a libido, we are sexual beings. If that goes away, that is a sign of a problem.
1: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So what do, I know I'm kind of jumping here, but what do women do then that are in, going through menopause or already in menopause, like how do they keep that part of them alive if your ovaries and your menstrual cycle are such like important factors to those things? Like some people don't want to just all of a sudden not have a libido and, and not be, you know, be dry all the time when they want to have sex with their partner. So how would you work on something like that with somebody that's in menopause?
2: Well, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of myths about menopause. We have a lot of fear around it. And I also think that, uh, again, if we think about, so in menopause, obviously the menstrual cycle stops, and this is a normal and healthy stage of womanhood. So first of all, kind of, when I talk about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, I mean, there's a certain stage of life where we menstruate, you know, it's that reproductive age from menarche to menopause, which typically is, you know, from age 12, 13, all the way up to say age 50, age 55. So, you know, as we naturally get to that stage, it's It's just a different stage of life, which is also a natural stage. Um, And the ovaries still continue to produce some level of hormones during that stage, which is why there's a lot of controversy around um, uh, doing complete hysterectomies, removing the uterus and the ovaries. Uh, And so one thing that's interesting to consider Uh, because I know many women in this field have put forth the idea that having healthy normal menstrual cycles throughout your reproductive years is somewhat protective. Um, And because it's only when we have our natural menstrual cycles that we are producing significant amounts of progesterone. And progesterone plays a lot of really important roles. It mitigates some of the effects of estrogen. We know estrogen is associated with growth. It's associated with cancer, like excessive estrogens. We have this idea that excessive estrogen is associated with some bad things. Um, But progesterone in the menstrual cycle has kind of like an anti-proliferative effect that balances and counters some of those effects of estrogen. So in general, if you think about your menstrual cycle as a vital sign, and if you think that throughout your reproductive life, if you're healthy, you're you've got healthy habits, you're eating a healthy diet, your endocrine system is working optimally normally, that would mean that your menstrual cycle would be normal and healthy. And then as you approach menopause, we associate menopause with all of the bad symptoms because a lot of women have a really hard time as they approach menopause. But what if those bad symptoms are also a sign that your body's out of alignment? What if your lifestyle habits of drinking all the coffee or all the alcohol, not getting enough sleep, what if those uh, lifestyle habits worsen your experience of menopause? So for a woman who is in that stage, who is having those issues, I would first, you know, think that she should be looking at those lifestyle factors because, when you speak to women who have gone through the change of life you know they don't lose their libido um things do change but there's a lot of healthy women who have even more of a libido after uh, menopause and so uh yeah there's a lot of especially because i mean I, i work with a lot of women of reproductive age obviously i'm also of reproductive age um the menstrual cycle charting the whole that whole aspect means that I'm working with women in that stage. But we often have a lot of fear about menopause because we feel like it's the end, or you know. And it's, um, I I look forward to when I get to that stage. Then I'll have more of a personal insight. But for now, I just have to sit on the sidelines and interview women and talk to women who are going through those stages to find out what their experience is like. And it's not what we think. Um, and I'll mention there's an interesting emotional shift that seems to happen post-menopause. I heard this um, analogy, like when we're in reproductive age, our bodies are preparing to support another life. This is a stage where it's very much a giving kind of stage. Even if you're not having babies, like you're still menstruating, you're still having this outwardly focus. But then once you hit that stage, your body's no longer doing that you end up being able to focus more on yourself. And I don't know if you've had this experience of like an auntie or a mother, grandmother who's gone through that stage and has no filter anymore. (laughs) There seems to be uh, some degree of wisdom, a shift that does happen that is very powerful and very interesting. So to shed some pause, like I'm I'm trying to shed some positive juju on on menopause because we're all going to be there at some point.
0: Well, I think that people don't realize, and just like I know we were either going to touch on this today or maybe even do another topic or a podcast specific to this topic, but a lot of people experience, you know, really painful periods and they have all these side effects. Well, it's the same with menopause. People think it's supposed to be this awful thing with the hot flashes and the weight gain and this. But really, if you are in a healthy state, those symptoms should not be as drastic. So it's like, you have to kind of look at your lifestyle factors. Like you were saying, it's like, if you're having really these awful symptoms, you should be go seeing a specialist because they should not actually be as bad as they're depicted, you know, on TV. It's, it's almost kind of like this running joke of uh, you're going to go crazy. And the poor husband has to deal with the crazy woman going through menopause,
2: but it it shouldn't be so extreme. Yeah. And if, I mean, you could go so far as to say that's another extension of the vital sign where if if you have a lot of those symptoms and they are unrelenting right they're consistent and unrelenting that's a good sign to make sure you get checked out you know go to a functional medicine practitioner have a full Hormone panel done. Find out how your body is processing estrogen. Some women find that, you know, some women have a harder time uh, breaking down and detoxifying and removing their natural estrogens from their body. And if you have way too much estrogen that's not fully being detoxified properly by your liver and your other bodily systems, that can cause a lot of issues uh, because we respond to hormones. Uh, so, looking into those things, having that understanding that, you know, all of the, those different lifestyle factors make a big difference. What I've seen, you know, in my practice working with women, is we often underestimate how big of a difference it can make to clean up the diet. Um, you know, get some exercise, but not too much. Uh, you know, the right amount of exercise, um, sleep, <laughs> get enough sleep, sleep in the dark, um, and look at some of our habits. Uh, things that would mess up our adrenal system, things that would mess up our hormone system. Uh, before even reaching for the supplement, before even going to to Whole Foods or whatever, and like before you even go there, looking at what's happening in your diet. One of the things also that charting your cycle, especially if you chart your cycle kind of for several years before you go into menopause, it gives you the opportunity to start making those connections at how the way that you live your life and your stress levels and all these different things affect your cycle. It kind of equips you to be able to go into that stage of life with a deeper awareness about how all of those signs are affected. Mm -hmm.
1: That's amazing. Um, which I'm wondering now that you've kind of touched on some of like the ways that you can help your menstrual cycle, like with like the diet, the exercise, the sleep, is there any other things that you would add on to that for people that are listening? They're like, Oh my God, she's talking about me. Like what, what next, what can I do? So kind of like if we could we could go into like what they could do in addition to what you've just said, but also um, who they could go and see for help.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, for for women who are interested then into, because there's there's some women who are going to hear this and are really interested to learn more about their menstrual cycles. And so for women who want to actually start to learn how to identify ovulation and how to get a sense of what's happening in the menstrual cycle, one of the easiest things you can do. So every woman listening, is gonna to go to the bathroom several times today. You know, I drank my water this morning <laughs> and I pee a lot. So Uh, but whenever, when you go to the bathroom, you're already wiping yourself. I didn't have to tell you to do that. So one of the things we can do is, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you went to the bathroom and you're like, Oh, today's the day. Uh, So just pay attention when you would, you're already doing your thing, but just pay attention now when you go to the bathroom and see as you go through your cycle, if there's a period of time where there is more lubrication and you do notice something more Uh, for women who are on the pill, uh, who are not ovulating, or on some type of birth control, you won't notice a difference, but you can start this conversation and start to learn more about the menstrual cycle. In addition to, uh, and when it comes to diet, I mean, some of the biggest offenders when it comes to menstrual cycle health would be the inflammatory oils. So cooking with, you know, canola oil, soybean oil, those types of things. So looking to remove those and cooking with more stable saturated fats, um, Looking at your sugar consumption. Uh, you know, sugar is associated with inflammation. And it's really interesting how big of an impact sugar consumption and simple carbohydrate con- consumption kind of unbalanced all of the the carbs with no protein and fat to balance it out, uh, how that can have an impact on your cycles and your overall health and even your skin and everything like that. Uh, So just in general, kind of looking at the diet, uh, cleaning it up a little bit, reducing processed food consumption. Uh, But beyond that, we touched on it a little bit, which is the chemical exposure. As women every product that is manufactured for us basically everything is full of xenochemicals unless you're actively looking for beauty products and care products that don't contain chemicals they all do whether it's hand lotion nail polish you know and so i'm not trying to take all of the products away because we all have a lot of them but it's more just start being aware start being aware of the body washes and the shampoos and the lotions everything that has a scent contains chemicals that are similar enough in structure to estrogen that they mimic estrogen in the body and they can cause a lot of imbalances. Um, they can contribute to menstrual cycle disruptions and cause all kinds of problems. Uh, so that's something to think about. It's a big conversation. We can, you know, cleaning products, beauty products, food, pesticide exposure, you know, I love air. I so
0: much that you touched on this. Because so many people think it's just about the food that they eat. And they're like, oh, well, I'm eating well and da, da, da. But it's like, do you understand that even like the paint you use to paint your walls, the water that you're drinking, like you said, the shampoo, your toothpaste, like the deodorant, all of these things are affecting us. And I don't think people take that as seriously as much yet because they don't understand how significant it actually is.
1: Yeah. And I know I've read before um, that your actual makeup is one of the biggest offenders which is crazy. Is that like the thing that, you know, people that women like to use to highlight their beauty is actually a big
0: offender of disrupting our home our hormones. I always think of lipstick when people are wearing lipstick and then they're licking their lips or drinking out of their straw. They have their coffee and it's, I'm like, not only is it on your skin, but you're literally swallowing remnants of your lipstick. So please make sure it's a good, clean lipstick. <laughs> yes.
2: Well, you think of your skin as an organ and basically everything that you put on your skin is absorbed. So if you wouldn't literally eat it, like if you wouldn't take your hand lotion and lick it, then you probably should put it on your skin. But I mean, for me, I've replaced a lot of my household cleaning products with vinegar and water and essential oils for a nice little scent. And there's a lot of great products. Um, You do have to look because there's also a lot of products that say things like natural, but they still contain fragrance and they still contain all those chemicals. Uh, So you do have to look, but there's a lot of Uh, replacing your household cleaning products, replacing your laundry detergent with something that is not scented or dyed, you know, replacing your dishwashing soap and dishwasher liquid with something that is non-scented. It's a big job. And when I have this conversation with my clients, I usually suggest that they are a little bit realistic and gentle with themselves. If this is something that you're wanting to tackle this year, then give yourself a six to 12 month stint. Um, for me, I started with a lot of the, the personal care products. I replaced a lot of my, well, pretty much all of the lotions with coconut oil and shea butter. Um, and, you know, a lot of the cleaning supplies. It took me a couple of years to find legit, a couple years to find dishwashing soap that worked because I would buy it and then it wouldn't work. Uh, You know, it took me a while to replace my water filter. That wasn't the first thing that I did. And then when I got rid of my nonstick pans to buy cast iron uh, pans, that wasn't the first thing that I did. Uh, But this is, I'm sharing that it's a process and you got to be gentle with yourself. And at the end of the day, there's no such thing. You're never going to be like clean and pure. (laughs) You can do all these things, but eventually you have to walk outside and breathe air. So we live in the greater Toronto area and it is really gross out there. There's a lot of cars here. So it's not about perfection. It's just about reducing our load so that we can just improve our health kind of little by little.
0: Well, even things like air purifiers are so helpful. And I think one of the biggest ones that gets me is perfume and how much oh, yeah. perfume and deodorant. It's like you're putting it in all these spots, like right on your like lymphatic system, like the big, the big notes. And it's just, I, I, so when I see people are like, you're insane, you won't even wear perfume. And I'm like, I might put it on my sweater once in a while. But no, I really, now that I understand the damages of it, I'm like, no, I, I use essential oils as my perfume now.
2: Hmm. Well, and I mean, controversial topic, but think about how much press and media, how many women do you know that are running for breast cancer and you go to the drugstore and they're putting like breast cancer stickers on Oh, deodorant and like getting started. chemical laden things. So as women, wow. we have to be the ones to advocate for our, our own healthcare. And yeah. there's a lot of things that we can do within our own homes, within our own lives. And it might sound extreme, but one of the things that I appreciate about menstrual cycle charting, I mean, I've been doing it personally for almost 20 years and I've been teaching it for just about as long I don't have to say a whole lot when I'm working with a woman and she's charting her cycles and she has some cycle concerns. If we address these lifestyle factors and she sees an improvement in her cycles or she experiences a reduction in her painful periods or uh, other related hormonal symptoms, that speaks for itself, right? I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really hopeful about all of this is that our bodies are really resilient and our menstrual cycles are really responsive. So when you're making changes and when you're addressing the issues that are actually causing whatever type of menstrual regularities you're experiencing when you're charting you actually are able to see it it's like a printout you know every cycle is a printout (laughs) essentially of your health and when you make these changes you can see the impact so um, that's one thing i like about what i do because then you have this kind of tangible record of how what you're doing is positively impacting your health
0: um so a question um i recently, in the last like year or so, started using a period tracker app on my phone, and I just kind of wondered your thoughts on them, because um, I've heard kind of mixed reviews. Some people are like, they're not very accurate, da, da, da. but for me, it's actually been really great. I feel like it's I get my period when it says I'm going to get my period, pretty roughly. It tells me when I'm ovulating, and that feels pretty accurate, so I just wondered if you would recommend this to people or your thoughts on it.
2: Well, I think it's, it's really important for all women um, who are so inclined to find some way of of keeping track. Um, Because what I do is so extensive. I I often have women saying like, I only... I only know when my period is coming. I didn't do any of the other stuff. Uh, and I say, that's, that's amazing. I had a client who she wasn't charting anything else, but she just tracked when she got her periods and she tracked it on an Excel spreadsheet and she had like seven years of it. And she was like, Oh, I didn't track very much. And I'm thinking like, you have seven years of history regarding your periods. It's incredible. So however, it's like the gateway drug, however you get in there, (laughs) that's good. Um, because this is basically a conversation that you're having with yourself. The only comment or question, like the only kind of comment or concern I have with period tracker apps is that uh, for women who are actually wanting to use this as a method of birth control or actually actively trying to conceive, the challenge with the apps is that they are based on algorithms. It's a modern modern day version of the rhythm method. So the tracker, the, the whole concept of like, I'm going to track a few cycles and then understand my patterns And then I could expect that I'm going to ovulate about the same time or all of that. Uh, For women who are trying to conceive, it is possible to ovulate earlier or later. Same thing with women who are trying to avoid. So if, if you're relying on that as your primary birth control, I would suggest to gain some fertility awareness knowledge to support that. But as a general, just tracking your period, I think it's really helpful and really important for us to be able to do that.
1: Amazing. Amazing. So I have, um, I guess, technically three questions before we wrap up. I didn't (laughs) say two, but I think three. So um, uh, the one question is like, how do people go about either finding you or finding another practitioner that's going to take more of this holistic approach. So if you have any advice on that for people that aren't local or maybe they can work with you uh, virtually, I'm not sure. So just kind of like, where do we go next? Because from what I'm gathering from our conversation, it's probably not going to be their general practitioner. Um, So where do they go next? And then the follow-up question is going to be about your book and then uh, the way that we finish our podcast, which is what makes you feel badass. So let's start (laughs) with the practitioner one and then we have two more to go.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Uh, So I suppose what I I always say to my clients is that when you're seeking support for menstrual cycle issues, it's really important to know your audience. If I need to get my oil changed, I'm not driving to the library and then being pissed off (laughs) that they didn't change my oil because that's not what they do there. So the first thing is to really understand what your doctor what the doctor's perspective is, what they offer, and what you can expect from your doctor. Uh, so I've interviewed a bunch of doctors on my podcast. Whenever I get a doctor on the show, I'm really excited because then I get to ask them, like, what did they teach you in medical school? I need to understand why the pill is you know, re- recommended for every single thing under the sun. Please teach me. <laughs> um, and so when I'm interviewing uh, you know, all of the interviews I've done over the years with doctors, what I've gathered is that you know, in medical school, they really learn about the, the stereotypical 28-day cycle, ovulation on day 14, and anything that falls outside of that, the the education is very much you know the pill regulates the cycle, and so for women who learn about the menstrual cycle, get really jazzed about fertility awareness, run to their doctors, uh, you know they often meet some challenges where. Whether it's, you know, they're, they're wanting to come off birth control and they're telling their doctor, I want to use fertility awareness, to which doctors often say, oh, it's the same as the rhythm method. It doesn't work. You're going to be pregnant in five days. <laughs> uh, so there's this, still this misconception that the fertility awareness method is not an effective method of birth control. Um, you know, for the record, 99.4% effectiveness when used accurately. Research studies have been done. It's not the rhythm method, but that's a whole other part of the conversation. So I would just encourage women, first of all, to recognize, you know, what Most classically trained doctors have been taught about the menstrual cycle. And if you're wanting answers as to why you're experiencing the symptoms that you're experiencing, you have to go to somebody who has been trained to look at the root cause. So you'd want to be looking at a functional practitioner, whether that is a medical doctor who has been trained in that functional perspective, whether it's a naturopathic doctor who specializes in female health, women's health, menstrual cycle health, um, or other practitioners who specifically focus on that. Um, For menstrual cycle charting and all of those types of fun things, I mean, I'm a certified fertility awareness educator. I teach women to chart their cycles. And for women who want this to be their primary birth control method, um, you know, taking a a class with a certified educator is the best way to get that high efficacy because then you really know what you're doing and you're not shooting in the dark, Um, so yeah,
1: yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so then the next question to that is, if somebody is just kind of wanting to learn more and doesn't feel like they need to see a practitioner, what is like one big takeaway they could get from your book? Like, how can we get them to get this awesome book that you've put so much time and research in and resources in? So, like, like tell us about it. Like, yeah, break a how, little yeah, bit.
0: <laughs>
2: Well, thank you for that. I mean, everything that we've been speaking about today is detailed in the book, from the information that we were talking about with birth control, to the vital sign aspect of it, to the different conditions that can show up in the menstrual cycle, to what a normal cycle looks like, to you know the menstrual cycle parameters, and all the way to what to do to optimize your chances of conception. I address sperm quality in there because that's a really big issue that is not address properly. Uh, And even the effects, you know, how does the pill affect fertility? Like when you come off of the pill, what does that look like in terms of trying to get pregnant? Um, So that and more is in the book. um, And I suppose to be, I don't know if it's boasty, but it just is what it is. Uh, It was really important to me not to just create an opinion piece, like a Lisa believes this fluff situation. So when I wrote the book, I spent a lot of time digging into what the research had to say because ultimately my goal was to make it more accessible. I was really surprised in a good way when I started researching for the book because it was, it was really comforting to know that there was so much research out there about all these different topics that we've spoken about today. But the challenge is that your average woman doesn't have access or time to spend going through like 2,000 research papers to pick the best 1,000 to put in the book, right? So I did that for you. <laughs> and wow. the references are in the back. And so it's, it's, it's a way for you to, to learn this information, but to also feel confident that if you wanted to further look into it, you would have the option to do that, so...
0: I just is the book hasn't been released yet. It has. January. Oh, oh, okay. Amazing. I thought you said that it hadn't been released yet. (laughs) Okay. I need to get a copy because I have a lot to learn. This is so fascinating. For years, like I was that person on the pill that was like, who cares? Like, I'm on the pill. I didn't think anything of it. And now, you know, I'm in my early 30s and I'm like, I need to know more. And I am slowly learning more about it. But I just think it's so important for women to know what's going on with their bodies because. Nobody cares about your health more than you. So I love yeah. that you're like really supporting women and being like, knowledge is power, here you go. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. And looking at it as a serious vital sign. Like I yeah. love that you're actually looking at it as a piece of the puzzle to our health. Yeah. And I think that's super important that
0: some people don't look at it like that. Um, you're giving women their power back. It's, mm-hmm. it's
2: really awesome work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that you said that because... Really and truly, I'm. I feel like I'm very. Uh, what's the word? I'm a very like emotional person, and I get really pissed. So instead of me like standing on the street somewhere just screaming. About how upset I am about the medical profession and how it treats women. This is—it's like this is how much energy, this is how much like angry energy I have to do all of this work. Yeah. You have to channel it into something positive. It's completely obscene that as young women we go through school and we don't learn about our cervical mucus and we don't learn how ovulation works and we don't learn about our menstrual cycles. Right? It's completely ridiculous. It. And to be embarrassed yeah. of
0: it and to hide. Yes. It.
2: It's just like, like hide your tampon as you go and
0: that was one thing I decided in my late twenties is like, I am no longer hiding the tampon, like up my sleeve. If I, like I just walk with it in my hand. I'm like, I do not give a shit. It is. I'm so sick of the guys being like, oh, don't talk about it. It's like, what? It yeah. is part of our life. Yeah. yeah. You were, well, shares- here's
1: because of yes. your mom bleeding. Yes. You were here because
0: yeah. Of- yeah. So I'm a lot more vocal about that stuff now. And I think <laughs> as, as women, we need to be more vocal. We shouldn't be ashamed of our freaking period.
2: No. Well, it's exactly what you said because I say it in the book and it's, um, I did an interview with Laura Owen and I believe she said the same thing, but it's, you know, literally there's no human being on earth that all of us are here because we were in our mother's womb at some point and we're basically bathed. That's what sustained us. That's what kept us alive, having a healthy um, uterine lining. We need that in order to have babies and conceive. So there's nobody on earth that hasn't passed through their mother's menstrual blood. So like enough already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Have some,
1: have some respect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this needs to be celebrated. This needs to be celebrated, not have shame around it. Yeah. Oh, I completely yeah. agree. We would absolutely love to have you back to talk about period pain. Cause that is one thing we hear a lot about. So if we could be so lucky, maybe in the future, we could have you back to talk about that because I feel like that is a whole other, a whole other important topic. Yep. Um, but before, before we kind of like, you know, let, let you go today, it's going to be sad because I know we could talk about a lot more. We just need to know what makes you feel badass.
2: Well, for right now, cause it's so new, actually pulling it off, actually writing the book and like doing it right. Yeah. Like it's real. It is the epitome of (laughs) (laughs) it. That makes me feel badass right now. Yeah.
1: I love how you took that anger and that frustration with the system and you put it into something so educational for women in such a holistic way. It's, yeah. It is very
0: badass. Yeah. <laughs> We're very supportive of babes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Our listeners would have gathered so much information. They're all going to run out now and buy the book.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. We'll make sure we put
0: that in our link
1: um, of the show notes, but as well in our blog so people can yep. find you and how to contact you if they want to work with you, but also if they just want to check out your book for yeah. sure. Yep.
2: And I should mention that it's available on Amazon just so people know where to go to get it. I saw
1: that. Yeah. I saw that. Right
0: on. <laughs> awesome.
1: Cool. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. And uh, don't, don't forget, forget to make today, today badass. badass.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of That Badass Podcast. If you could do us a huge favor and head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, we would be so grateful because you have no idea how much that helps us grow our podcast.
1: Yeah. And as an incentive and a little bonus, we're going to be doing a monthly giveaway and it's going to be kind of a mix of everything that we have to offer. So one month, it could be Royally Fit Online joining our community. It could be from the Badass Boutique or maybe even just some like free recipes and like a coaching call or something with us. We will figure it out month by month as we go. So yeah, please go over iTunes podcast app, leave us a five-star review. And once again, thank
2: you so much for listening. Spare room Studios.